Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer, following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years' experience. My name is Jari Bolander, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Here with me are four of my fellow certified StoryGrid editors, Leslie Watts, Valerie Francis, Anne Holly, and Kim Kessler. Each week, one of us pitches a film as an example of a significant story principle. Then we as a team go through each of the ideas and test it, looking at it from all different angles to give authors a deep insight into story structure. This week, Anne pitched Bandersnatch as a great test case for a complex story form. This 2018 episode of the Netflix series Black Mirror was directed by David Slade from a screenplay by Charlie Brooker. It's a bit of a departure for us because it's part of a TV show and part video game, and we'll take a look at how and whether it works. Anne's going to start us off with a genre and a quick one-sentence summary each of the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff to orient us to the story. Anne, why don't you take it away? Okay. Before I proceed, spoiler warning, flashing lights, big red letters. I don't think any of us know for sure whether we saw all the variations and endings of Bandersnatch, but we're definitely going to spoil the ones we did see. Well, the genre on this one was a little bit tricky. I'm leaning towards status. It's um, pretty fractured by design and a solid through line was not obvious. But Stefan, the protagonist, appears to be motivated by a desire for success or honor. And he has a deadline and must perform. So it kind of put the story somewhere in that honor, status, performance band of, of stories. As far as I could tell, on several attempts through the story, the subgenre is either tragic or pathetic. So here's the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff. I have done my best here. I really have. All I can say is depending on which paths you follow in the game, your story may vary. All right, so here's my stripped down version. Beginning hook. When Stefan's pitch for a video game is accepted by an up-and-coming game company, he must accept the job offer and all the perks or insist on his own way of working by himself. He accepts the offer and the story ends in failure. Or he says no and goes to work on his new game at home, agreeing to meet a difficult deadline. Middle build. When Stefan loses his temper over a code failure, alerting his worried father to some mental health issues, Stefan must agree to visit with his therapist or else go off with his game mentor, Colin, and solve his blockage another way. He goes with Colin, takes LSD, seems to watch Colin die by suicide, and wakes up as if from a bad dream, still facing the looming deadline. Or he goes to his therapist and relives the childhood trauma of losing his mother in a train derailment. In the ending payoff, sort of. When the LSD trip, or else the therapy session, leads Stefan to uncover a mind control conspiracy that has been using him all his life, or maybe a conspiracy in which Netflix in the future is actually controlling his actions, he must control his temper or else give in to the violent impulse that may be his own or may be inflicted on him from the outside. He controls his temper but destroys his own computer, the game, and his career. Game over. Or he kills his father and meets his deadline. The game is released to rave reviews because it's just that good. Or it's released to mediocre reviews because it's bad, but interesting because its creator is a murderer. 
Either way, Stefan is in prison for killing his dad. <laughs> uh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I went through all those, those uh, arcs. I will say that some of the flow diagrams and what in the engineering world would be like state diagrams of how this thing goes through is pretty complex. So I am shocked that you even got through all that. So uh, let's just see what this whole complex story form is and how well Black Mirror's Vandersnatch actually uh, adheres to it. Honestly, I think Vandersnatch may be a case against complex story forms. I know that Valerie is going to make the case later that this is really not a nonlinear story, but a basic linear one with a choice of which line to follow. And I agree with that assessment. But I would say that it is complex to the extent that it is full of possible threads that you could follow. And that makes it complex to watch. And I imagine it must have been quite complex to write. But unfortunately, it's not an interesting story. And I think we're all going to be talking about why. First of all, it's presented on that huge story-purveying platform, Netflix, right? And it's an episode of Black Mirror, which is an anthology series known for great storytelling. So that setup, which is external to the episode itself, says this is going to be a story. And instead, the episode tries to deliver a game. It's almost like picking up a book whose cover and marketing say thriller, and then it turns out to be a romance. Now, romances are fine, but readers would be forgiven for feeling dissatisfied if romance wasn't what they came here for. With Bandersnatch, if you came for a story, you got a game. And if you came for a game, it's not a very good game. So I asked Google, I literally typed in, what's the difference between a game and a story? Okay, because sometimes you just ask Google and Google turns up solid gold. And it did in this case. It turned up a marvelous article titled Where Stories End and Games Begin by a guy named Greg Kostikian. He's known as Designer X, a senior American game designer, and he is also the author of four science fiction novels. So his credentials are pretty good. We'll link to the article. The article is nearly 20 years old, so he was not writing specifically about Bandersnatch, but he might as well have been. So I'm going to quote a couple of passages. Game designers need to understand that gaming is not inherently a storytelling medium, and that this is not a flaw, that our field is not intrinsically inferior to, say, film, merely because movies are better at storytelling. Kostikian goes on to state that a story is linear. He means this in the sense that you experience it linearly, that is, from first page to last or from opening scene to closing scene. And it's the same every time you read or watch it. You can go back to the beginning and go through it again. A game is nonlinear, and it must provide at least the illusion of free will to the player. The game structure constrains what they can do, but they must feel that they have options. And if they don't, they become mere passive recipients of the experience. Then they aren't playing anymore. Here's the money quote. I want to just like put this in trumpets. In other words, there's a direct, immediate conflict between the demands of story and the demands of a game. Divergence from a story's path is likely to make for a less satisfying story. Restricting a player's freedom of action is likely to make for a less satisfying game. To the degree that you make a story more like a game, with alternative paths and outcomes, you make it a less effective story. 
It's not merely that games aren't stories and vice versa. Rather, they are, in a sense, opposites. So, essentially, Kostikian is saying choose one path or the other. <laughs> story or game. If you pick story, then write a story. If you pick game, create a game. The paths will never meet again. And that is the fundamental problem with Bandersnatch. It tries to be both, and it ends up not much of either. Whether you enjoy it or not comes down to whether you enjoy the puzzle and exploration aspects of a game and interacting with the text, or you prefer a complete story where your participation is limited to the act of reading or, or watching and experiencing the story inwardly. Now, I need to make a disclaimer here. The last interactive quest computer game I played was missed, probably in the early 90s. So I'm not in the target audience for Bandersnatch, but who is? If I were a gamer, I'm pretty sure this trip down memory lane to basically Zork with pretty pictures would be fun once as a novelty, but it's not challenging as a game, and I can't see where I'd play it more than a couple of times. Now, I like a complicated tale, but I like it to be delivered to me in complete form. I want the author to have ventured down various paths their story suggests and picked the one that best fit what they wanted to say in the genre they're writing in and discarded all the others. That's their job. That's our job as writers. What I do like about complex forms of story is their puzzle aspects. And Bandersnatch tries to present some of these. There's the mysterious conspiracy story, which may be arising from Stefan's mental breakdown over his project or maybe from his taking LSD, I could have gotten into a story like that because there's an interesting mental challenge to keeping track of the pieces and doing some of the work of making sense of them. That's a story that I can reread or rewatch, combing through it for clues like a sleuth. But unfortunately, it was so tedious to comb through Bandersnatch that I only got through it a second time because I had to for the podcast. It's slow. You can't pause and go back. You have to wait for the 10-second clock to elapse on every choice point. It got boring and annoying really fast. Now, the most puzzle-like story we've covered on the podcast so far is Cloud Atlas. And though I don't think any of us really loved the movie, including me, the puzzle pieces of the novel it was based on revolved around engaging characters whose trials created pathos and feeling in me and whose triumphs were satisfying and I was rooting for them. In Bandersnatch, there was so much energy wasted on the branching paths that character development just really never happened. I can't say I cared much about Stefan. And when I made him choose one thing over another, he became like a hand puppet instead of a human character. But it was a hand puppet that I really couldn't make do anything very interesting. So game design and deadline pressures are driving poor Stefan out of his mind, making a good choice for him like, no, Stefan, don't kill your dad. Either ends the game or loops me back, and I feel corralled into making Stefan into a murderer. The story fails if I don't. Now, Leslie's going to talk uh, something about the uncomfortable impact of that in a minute. But it doesn't make me care about the protagonist. It just makes me uncomfortable and makes me want to exit the game. From the story grid perspective, the crises, which really this piece is all about, it's about the crisis choices. That's where you make your choice on behalf of the character, right? The crises don't escalate properly. The first choice you make for the protagonist is between two breakfast cereals, and that choice has no impact on how the story proceeds, as far as I can tell, certainly not a big impact. It's there simply to train you in your new job as an interactive participant in the story. 
Near the midpoint, you choose which of the two characters is going to jump to his death. After that, you choose whether Stefan should bite his nails, which is back to the breakfast cereal level of importance, which is not at all important. The crisis point reversibility is all over the place rather than steadily climbing. If you make a so-called wrong choice, the story either stops or loops back, forcing you eventually to escape by means of the closing credits or take it to its win-but-lose conclusion where your computer game is a hit, but you're in prison for murder. So not very satisfying. One of the questions I wanted to look at is, so is this a new thing? Is this like something we're all going to have to learn how to write because this is the direction that stories are going? Well, it's not a new thing. This form has been around in early computer games and choose-your-own-adventure books since the 1960s. If you're interested, there's a small niche community of people creating hypertext novels. The basic idea is that you explore the story, moving from one branch to another, gradually gaining an understanding of what's happening. The stories come with their own software and at present seem to rely on desktop operating systems. So it's a bit kludgy, but if it's something you're interested in, that's happening and we'll link to it. So are we going to gradually subsume stories in games? I don't think so. Both play and story are fundamental human activities, but they are very different activities. So what's in this for a writer? At a meta level, Bandersnatch might be seen as the story about the maddening nightmare of designing a story that works. The author of the big, thick paperback choose-your-own-adventure novel that Stefan in the, in the show is basing his game on went insane, trying to get his mind around the branching structure of his story. He murdered his wife and presumably also wound up in prison. So I'll go right out on a limb and say that when you really break it down, Bandersnatch could be seen as a cautionary tale for writers and storytellers of all kinds. The meta-moral of the story is, keep it simple, stupid, choose your story and decide which crisis choice your character is going to make based on the demands of the kind of story you're telling. Let the other branches go. Edit them out. And that's my big takeaway as a writer. Non-traditional, non-linear, branching, hypertext, gamified. All these story forms are interesting and worthy of study, certainly. People who want to create a choose-your-own story should give it a go. Why not? We don't all have to write totally mainstream stories. But if that's where your interest lies, then design a game. Otherwise, be a storyteller, an author, do your job, and write a good, engaging, more or less linear story and deliver it to your audience fully formed. Boom. Yeah, you should do a drop mic on that one <laughs> because I 100% agree with you. I uh, sat and you know watched it, and then I would make all these wrong choices, and so then it would reset and reset, and I kind of didn't figure that out until about a half an hour. I'm like, oh, it's resetting all the time. I guess I'm making the wrong choice. Right. And that was really frustrating. So very frustrating. Yeah. The way it's shot, you know, the dialogue and the set and setting, the time it's put in, which I know people will talk about in a second, is all great, but it is just so hard to follow and not satisfying at all because the thing never ends. I don't know. I, I agree. Interesting to study, but hard to pull off. So uh so Valerie, what what do you uh what do you think of this? Well, I am on the same page as Anne, I have to say. I don't think it is an example of nonlinear story form. I'm not even sure I'd call it a complex story form. Maybe this is semantics. 
I don't know. It's different. Yes, it's totally different. But is it complex? Having different paths to choose, in my opinion, doesn't automatically create a nonlinear story. If you go down the wrong path, they rewind to the point that you made the wrong decision and you have to start again. But Stefan's timeline within the story is linear. And they even put dates on the screen to show you the passage of time and sort of keep you following the story. And yes, there are options to choose from, so it's tempting to look at the various flowcharts online and perceive complexity. Now, here's why I don't think it's a complex story form, and it, this is picking up on something Anne just talked about. Anyone who has written or is writing a story, whether it's a novel or a screenplay, knows that this is the norm, right? This is the thing that we do as writers. The difference is that all of these decisions that we're making in the course of writing our novel is made by the writer in the privacy of the writer's room rather than by the audience. So do different options make it complex? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm still on the fence about it. Now, I also agree with Anne that Bandersnatch is more of a game than anything else. It's, it's a novel idea, but I'm bummed. No doubt about that, but the more I think about it, the more I believe that as a story, it doesn't work very well. Now, maybe that's because the form is still in its infancy, relatively in its infancy, certainly on a streaming platform like Netflix, right? But looking at this one example, in my opinion, the choose-your-own-adventure story annihilates narrative drive. And of course, narrative drive is what I'm really trying to study this season and understand better. Let me explain what I mean. As a recap, narrative drive is all about creating a sense of curiosity in the audience. Viewers keep watching and readers keep turning pages because they want to know what will happen next. In theory, then, the Bandersnatch style of storytelling sounds like it would be the perfect vehicle for generating narrative drive. In practice, it doesn't. Or more precisely, it can't sustain our interest or curiosity for very long. Because this is new, we're initially curious about how the thing works. I mean, that gets us to tune into Netflix, right? As the story begins to unfold, we're anticipating the first choice that we get to make. We're asking ourselves, when will it come? What will it be about? What are the consequences of the decision that I make? We don't really care about Stefan that much. The seeds of a great story are there. I mean, we should be curious about the relationship between Stefan and his father and whether he's going to finally create this game bandersnatch that will, you know, make him a millionaire. But we, the viewer, are distracted by the playing of the game on Netflix. We're focused on ourselves and what we have to do. We're thinking about when we have to do something, not what's happening in the story. When we're writing stories as novelists, it's challenging yet essential to get the audience to empathize with the protagonist. The audience has got to care about what happens to him. Empathy is key for a narrative drive. With Bandersnatch, our attention is on us. It's not really on Stefan. When do we get to make a decision? When do we get to play God? Stefan never becomes a character we relate to. He's only ever our plaything. He's our avatar, and Anne alluded to that as well. So if the point of curiosity in a choose-your-own-adventure is, what are my choices, and by extension, what are the consequences of my choices, then the crisis moments need to be really good, and each decision 
must, must, must send the viewer or reader down a unique path to a unique conclusion. Now, look, this is a logistics and a budgetary nightmare. And intellectually, I can completely understand why the filmmakers created some dead ends in the story. The problem is that these dead ends kill the narrative drive. <laughs> Again, but I'm, I'm full of puns. I'm, I just can't stop myself. <laughs> the whole premise of choose your own adventure stories is that we get to choose our own adventure, right? But in Bandersnatch, we don't really. If we make the wrong choice, the game stops us and steers us down the path they want us to go or they need us to go. This only has to happen once for us to start to lose interest. Okay, full disclosure here, I am not a gamer. I, I don't get it. So I wondered if my impatience with Bandersnatch was because I wasn't the target audience. So I roped my daughter, who's 15 and who does like to play video games, into watching or playing Bandersnatch because I wanted to see what her reaction was. And I didn't tell her anything about it. We, we did it separately. I didn't guide her choices or anything like that. So the very first time she was corrected, she cried foul. It was really interesting. There's there's a scene where Stefan decides whether he's going to work from the offices of the company or he's going to work from home to finish his game. And you really only get one choice there. There's two choices on the screen, but one of them is a dead end. And that's fairly early in the story. And from that point on, she was losing interest. The second time it happened, she started talking to the TV. She was saying things like, but this is, this is supposed to be my choice. I'm supposed to get a choice here. Why did you ask me to choose if you're going to do what you want to do anyway? It, it was fascinating. It was a fasc fascinating social experiment. So my daughter kept wanting to leave the room by that point. And she even asked if she could turn it off. But now, God love her, she stuck with it to help me out because she knew I had to do this podcast today. But by the end of the show, she was completely tuned out. She was you know, looking at her fingernails. And I had to actually prompt her to say, okay, Avery, you have to make a choice now. This is not a child with an attention problem, okay? She can binge watch Stranger Things and barely blink. She can recite every episode of Friends and still laugh. Marta Kaufman and her team are so brilliant at what they do that the anticipation of the punchline of her jokes 20 years later still works. So I've been thinking about why the Bandersnatch representation of a choose-your-own-adventure is a problem. And here's what I came up with. I don't think that story uses the five commandments of storytelling effectively. And it's really interesting because Anne picked up on that as well. And I know Kim and Leslie have, so I don't want to trump what they're going to say in a few minutes. But in Bandersnatch, the turning points, they do lead to a question, but it's not a crisis question. There's really no dilemma or we don't perceive a dilemma. And that is, you know, there's, we don't understand what, what's at stake here for Stefan? What is the best bad choice or the irreconcilable goods? We simply have an option between two random things. So the questions we're asking ourselves switch from what does the option do to, well, what difference does it make? Or worse, how do I get out of this game? In some cases, there are no consequences to the climactic decisions. And just mention this as well. For example, it doesn't matter which serial is chosen or which music is chosen on the bus. Other times, the game overrides our decision, like when Colin offers Steph in the LSD, or the decision that we make leads to a dead end, like the example I just gave when Stefan chooses to work in the gaming office 
well, he can't, he, he has to work from home. So in the end, although my daughter and I were making different choices, we got pretty much the same results. The game wouldn't let her quit until Stefan killed his father and ended up in jail. And neither one of us wanted that thing. We wanted the happy ending. We wanted the catharsis. We wanted Stefan's game to be a success and for he and his father to repair whatever rift was in the relationship. But that wasn't, we didn't get to choose that, ironically, in a choose your own adventure. So that begs the question, if there is no scenario in which Stefan's game is a great, huge hit, I mean, there's one option, I think, where it gets two and a half stars or something, but I didn't see that as a huge hit, or in which Stefan can remain sane and free, then the choices that the viewer makes are moot. Wow, that's actually a really good point. So the choose your own adventure is really not fully your choice. You know, the writer of this, if they really wanted to kind of show you what their their thought of how it should ultimately go, should have just done that. Yeah, I, mean, I think it would have been more interesting. Yeah, I mean, in, 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 in a real game, it's so complex and you can go down various different paths that, and the ultimate goal is different. Like if you're gaining points or you're, you're solving the maze or whatever, that's actually a really good point. Now, now that I'm thinking about it, even when I was a gamer, this would be wholly unsatisfying. So Leslie, what do you think of all this? Well, I'm going to look at this from a couple of different points of view. And the first is about, you know, why, why we study stories. And of course, this wasn't an enjoyable experience for me. I couldn't slip into the narrative dream because I had to stay alert and make decisions. And those decisions left me feeling less than wonderful. But it's a great example of what stories can do. It showed me what typical story elements usually accomplish because Bandersnatch subverts them. And I assume it's because it's meant to do something very different from the typical story. So although the narrative is linear, we we get to call do-overs when we make a decision that doesn't work out so well for Stefan. So, so much for irreversibility of character climax decisions. And when writers alter the structure in this way, they often want us to look at storytelling itself. But I don't think that's what the creators intended here. Just bear with me for a moment. I'm going to take a kind of circuitous route, but hopefully make a good point. And Valerie makes an excellent point that narrative drive isn't really working, at least not the way it does, in, again, in a typical story. I started out curious about what would happen, but that was altered when I was permitted to repeat decisions that didn't go as well as I'd hoped. My concern for Stefan quickly eroded from the result of the first story-related crisis to accept or refuse the deal with Tuckersoft, because in that moment, part of me realized the rules of this story world also weren't typical. It became more of a puzzle that I wanted to solve. In other words, how can I finish the game and earn five out of five stars? So that first wrong answer was an inciting incident that changed my entire approach to this story slash game. I no longer cared about Stefan's welfare, but I didn't even realize it until I faced the choice to chop up or bury a body. That's both the genius and kind of the scary part of the story. 
it actually reminds me of the 1961 Milgram experiment that tested obedience to authority figures in which subjects were directed to administer electric shock to a student who gave the wrong answer in a memory recall exercise. Of course, there weren't real people being shocked, but the person administering the shock didn't know that. If you compare that and the Bandersnatch episode with the studies that I will link to in the show notes that show reading fiction tends to make people better at empathy and understanding others, then you realize something altogether different is happening here. I don't think we get the benefit of several do-overs because the creator wants us to look at our decisions and reassess them in terms of what's in our highest good. I think it's much more likely that Netflix wants to look at our decisions with the goal of gathering the holy grail of data, clear choices tied to an identifiable individual as opposed to an anonymous user. So is it any wonder that this was set in 1984? Man, that's a terrifying idea. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's perfect setting for this. Frankie goes to Hollywood doesn't hurt either. Um, But this is a great exercise and a lesson in understanding that all kinds of people in the world get story and use it to their advantage. Sean has made the point more than once that we should study stories so we can tell better ones, but it's also important that we identify the stories that are being worked on us. Now, for the record, I don't think Netflix has an intent other than commercial ones here. But again, it's a great exercise in looking at the story beneath the story. So the takeaway for the fiction writer is, I think here, use your powers for good, not evil, and be aware of the stories that you encounter in the real world. I also wanted to look at point of view. So if you accept that narrative drive comes from our desire to win the game, then one way the creators accomplish this is with second-person point of view, which is the same that's employed in the game books, the ones that have been mentioned so far, the Choose Your Own Adventure series. The important thing to understand, of course, about any point of view choice is that it's not just a grammatical construct. And honestly, it's that's not even a useful way to make the decision. Think about it this way. When you choose a point of view character or narrator, you answer the question, who should tell this story? Who should reveal these events? And what information do they have access to? And when you choose the specific point of view, that is first, second, third, limited, omniscient, you're answering the question, how should the character or narrator tell the story? If you think of point of view like a camera's viewfinder, then you're on the right track because point of view characters, when combined with other writing tools, allow the reader to essentially slip into the character's skin or view the scene from far away in time and space. A second-person point of view works in a couple of different ways. It can pull the reader deep into the character's perspective and experience, like first-person kind of masked as second-person. Anne and I talked about this form in episode 126 of the Writership Podcast. 
And in the submission, we discuss a character who's trying to persuade the reader to see things his way. But second person can move in the other direction to make the reader or viewer a stand-in for the character. And that's what we have in the Choose Your Own Adventure stories and in this Bandersnatch episode. Either way, there's an immediacy that feels like reliving rather than a retelling of events. And second person point of view is often used in sales copy for just this reason. The line between the character and the reader begins to dissolve. And it's a really intense point of view that can be overwhelming and off-putting with very little room for flexible narrative distance. And it also removes the typical protective frame that the reader inhabits in relation to story events. But in the right circumstances and when executed well, it's a powerful tool. So the takeaway here for the fiction writer is that point of view choices are not just tense and pronoun picks. So be aware of what you're trying to accomplish and pick the point of view that is most effective for that. Okay, the last thing I want to talk about is crisis questions and their relevance in these types of of story games. Again, this is not a typical story. It's doing things that a typical story does not do. And as Valerie explains, the crisis questions that we answer often don't feel quite right. So even when we reach what Anne has skillfully identified as the crisis of the beginning hook to accept or refuse Tucker Soft's offer, we don't know what's at stake or what the choices really mean because the one that makes the most sense, given what we've seen so far, and the one you would see in a typical status story to accept the opportunity because there's no refusal of the call in a status story. But the story or game ends right away when we make that choice. So as I mentioned earlier, we learn that the rules of this story world aren't what we think they are. So all bets are off. And before you know it, you're burying your father in the garden, which again is quite a scary prospect. I reviewed an installment of the Choose Your Own Adventure series from my children's library. It's called Space and Beyond. And it's better than Bandersnatch in that we can see what's at stake and the choices seem to actually matter to the story. But still, the storylines are thin. They might be more substantial, but at heart, they are still more game than story. And all of this points to what Anne suggests is a continuum with story on one side and games on the other. Bandersnatch is somewhere in the middle. The choose your own adventure books are a little closer to story. And then in terms of what I would call true stories that that come closest to these are crime stories. And if you read The Murders in the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe, with its opening discussion of the relative merits of chess and checkers, you can probably see that connection. So if you're interested in skirting this game storyline, I found a site that uses images to show how these narratives are put together, and you can see that in the show notes. 
My final takeaway for the fiction writer is if you're writing a story with typical structure, your crisis questions should be best bad choices or irreconcilable goods choices, and the dilemma should impact the life value of your global genre. Thanks for that, Leslie. Wow, I got to go check out the uh, Space and Beyond. Maybe my uh, girlfriend's daughter will like that. She likes uh, making up her own stories, so we'll see how that goes. So Kim, what's your take on all this? I personally, I had a lot of fun watching and interacting with Bandersnatch, not so much as a story, but simply as this diverting experience. And I love games and I love puzzles and I just enjoyed experiencing it for what it was. Because amidst all the variety of story threads, there really aren't any significant setups and payoffs and there's no surprising yet inevitable conclusions. It's all just pretty random. Like, everybody's already talked about. So there's no pattern here that we can find meaning in. And so there can be no lasting satisfaction. And this is ultimately what seems to be missing for me is that meaningful story pattern, aka an identifiable genre. If there is a bona fide content genre, it doesn't seem to be executed strongly enough for me to, you know, have the meaning really hit home. Or perhaps it's just not the kind of story I enjoy. Either way, knowing your content genre is the fundamental piece of information to tell a story that works, because the number one reason a story doesn't work is because that global content genre is not well-defined. Why is that, you might ask? The term content genre is really a stand-in for life values at stake, which is not a fixed point, but rather a spectrum of values from the most positive to the most negative, the negation of the negation, and all of those gradations that are possible in between. I'll uh, link to one of our most recent Fundamental Fridays posts that Valerie and I put together that talk a lot about how you kind of can come up with those gradations between those two points. Depending on where a story begins on the spectrum, positive or negative, and sometimes neutral, and where it ends on that same range, positive or negative, this tells us something meaningful about whatever happened in between. And we can't help but try to interpret some kind of meaning from it because humans are hardwired to find meaning. Whether or not the audience can interpret something meaningful is ultimately what makes a story work or not work. So let's take a little step back and look at what makes a story a story. For our in-depth work on internal genres, Leslie and I dug into the work of Norman Friedman and how he sought to distinguish narrative story and plot from other literary forms that had previously all been lumped together. His work centered on going deeper than just the recital of events that took place in a story and instead hone in on the specific elements that create the pattern of meaning. One, the protagonist's character and motives, their state of mind and external circumstances. Two, the change they undergo. And three, the crucial chain of cause and effect leading them from one condition to the other. In the simplest terms, a story is when a specific kind of protagonist is exposed to a specific external circumstance that changes them in a particular way so that they are better or worse off than they were at the beginning of the story. The combination of these elements is what provides the various prescriptive or cautionary tales that we as humanity crave. And just to be clear, this definition of story applies to external genres and internal ones. So let's take a look at how these specific elements show up in Bandersnatch. First, we all experience the same opening. Stefan is a deep-thinking and talented programmer who takes medication and whose mother has died, and he now lives alone with his father, who doesn't seem to understand him. He's seeking to pitch and sell his complex game idea to a company in hopes of becoming a mass-market hit. So that's our setup. From here, no matter what paths you take, you will reach one of 13 endings, we think, That's what the online spreadsheets seem to show, that there are 13. But they're all negative. 
Each ends in either failure of the game, Stefan's death, or success for the game, but Stefan is a murderer. The greatest change that we can track is Stefan's external circumstances, his fortune or status. And each time, it ends up worse off than he began. And as Anne pointed out at the beginning, this indicates a status-pathetic or status-tragic story arc. So there's some subtle differences between the two. Here's our cause and effect statement for each. So for status-pathetic, we have... When a sympathetic protagonist who has weak character and is too unsophisticated to see the consequences of their actions experiences misfortune without the guidance of an adequate mentor, they will fail to rise in social standing. And status tragic is when a sympathetic protagonist, ambitious and sophisticated enough to see the consequences of their actions, but lacks an adequate mentor and makes a serious mistake in their attempt to rise, the result is a tragic fall in social standing and often death. An argument can be made for either, and perhaps it varies somewhat depending on the path that you take, but either way, our life values at stake are success and failure, which point to the controlling idea or theme that I'm calling out for this story. A protagonist is doomed to failure when their options are limited and controlled by a force other than their own. Now, this is a meta-meta-meta theme because it applies to the protagonist, Stefan, whose actions are forced by what we, the viewer, choose for him, and it applies to us, the viewer, as our choices are limited to what the game creator has laid out for us to choose from. And it seems fitting that Stefan tells his therapist that the game he created only has the illusion of free will. This sums up our viewing experience quite accurately. And I think that is why it really bothers us. In a typical story experience, the only element of control we have is whether or not to keep reading. But here, we're given the illusion of choice, so we think we have some control over the outcome but we really don't. I never chose for Stefan to kill his father, and yet he ends up doing it anyway at a later point without me being given the option. There was no way to win. All the endings are negative. For me, the most satisfying ending was when he was able to go back in time through the mirror to when he was a child and choose to go with his mother on the train, and then it turned out it was as if he had died in the therapist's chair as an adult. That, to me, was a beautiful ending with the greatest sense of empowerment to choose how the story ends because he and we know what it means to go on the 845 train, and he and we choose it anyway. That is a choice that has true meaning even if it's a bittersweet ending. However, the rest of the story threads don't provide that kind of satisfaction. And because, to be clear, just because a story ends negative at a negative life value does not mean that it isn't satisfying. The other endings don't seem to convey any specific meaning. Unless that too is part of the point, if there is a point, is there meaning in acknowledging and recognizing that we only have the illusion of free will and something else is really pulling the strings? And does that make what seems random actually the opposite, aka pure intention by the creator of the story? This may all have shifted to over-the-top meta nonsense, but when I step back and look at our modern lives and all the screens we're plugged into, all the apps, all the advertising and marketing and all its forms, Netflix, Google, Amazon, Facebook, you name it, And then I think that I am in control and that I am making free will choices. Having this discussion today actually gives me pause to really consider if that is true. How much are we and therefore our choices influenced by these and other outside parties? I always cite the quote, no one is an island unto themselves when talking about story and life and how it's all connected and how we're all connected. And usually I interpret that to be this beautiful and positive meaning. But in this context, I can look at Stefan's fate and it becomes a clear cautionary tale for us all. Because you are not an island, because you are hopelessly connected, be aware and beware of the outside forces that are calling the shots on your options and choices. 
Wow, that is really meta 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 cubed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, you just brought up the whole determinism type approach, which we could spend countless hours discussing. But but it's a good point. You know, when when are you just the culmination of all the things that are influencing you? And I mean, this is a great example of that. We're guiding the main character on this path, but then some of the paths to us are just not satisfying. And you can imagine that over time, if, if this kind of builds up into something that people generate that could have infinite endings, just like our lives have potentially infinite endings. So great, uh, great point on that. Yeah, it makes me think about this is kind of a random departure. But you know, there's like the different laws that get passed about like don't have sodas over 16 ounces. And like some people are like, no, people should get to choose whatever they want. Or no, we should pass laws that protect people from making those kinds of choices. And all of those things are just really interesting. And they they feel like somehow they're related to at least the takeaway I got from from this discussion and watching this story is how much free will do we even have in the real world? And can I be held accountable for my decisions? Or am I being forced to make bad choices. And anyway, it's really kind of an interesting thing. One thing that I think is interesting to compare this story to is uh, is the story form that's sort of epitomized in Groundhog Day, where the character themselves goes back over and over and over again, kind of like you feel like you're doing with Bandersnatch. But we, as the viewers, have the satisfaction of seeing that character make a slightly different choice and improve and grow and get better and come to a better conclusion in the end. And Bandersnatch is like the the opposite of that, but they're they're related. It will be it would be an interesting area to to study. Totally, totally. Yeah, great. Uh, so, as usual, to wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners. This week's question comes to us from Mateos. Let's have a listen. Hi. So um, I've been trying to figure out this thing you guys talk about, um, external charge and internal charge. And um, I, I've been checking all the entries on the blogs and, and in the articles. And I even found like a guy asking about it in 2014. And you guys answered them saying like, yeah, no, that's a deep thing. We're, we're going to cover that in the future. And I was looking for some of it and I didn't find anything yet. So maybe I'm just bad at looking. Maybe you guys can just like direct me to the right place or maybe you could cover it. I don't know. Uh, that would be nice. Thank you. Mateus is talking here about the external and internal charge columns that Sean has on the Foolscap. Now, I've got a whole article about this on the Fundamental Fridays blog, and it's called Value Shift 101. And I recommend that you look at that. Not because I wrote it, but because it goes into a lot more detail than I can go into here. So in a nutshell, these columns are tracking the story on a global level, on the highest possible level. And what you're doing is considering each of the 15 core scenes of your story. And the 15 core scenes are those 15 scenes we outline on the Foolscap. So consider each of those from the author's point of view. So from the highest level that you can consider it. And then ask yourself whether in that scene, the protagonist moves closer to or further from her object of desire. That is her external want and her internal need. If they're moving closer to what they want externally, you put a little plus in the column. 
If they're moving closer to what they need internally, you put a plus in the column. If it's further from either of those things, you put a minus in the column. And what you'll start to notice as you analyze stories yourself is that often these two value charges are moving opposite to one another. They might both start positively or might both start negatively, but they'll, they'll start to provide a lovely counterpoint to one another as the story moves along. Now, there's lots of examples that you can study. Sean has done Silence of the Lambs, of course, in the Story Grid book. He also has done Pride and Prejudice. That's a whole book he's analyzed, and the downloads are on the Story Grid site for the Fool Scap and whatnot. And here on the, this podcast, in our first two seasons, we did the Editor 6 Core Question Analysis for all 12 content genres twice. And the Editor 6 Core Questions is, of course, the Fool Scap right? So we've got those charge columns filled in. Now, if your story doesn't have an internal genre, because not all of them need one, just ignore that on your full scap and move on. You can delete it or, or just leave it blank. So I hope that helps answer your question a little bit more. And by all means, go in and check out Value Shift 101 because I go into a lot more detail there and I've got some more examples and it's a little easier to understand. Okay, that's it. Thanks, Valerie. If you have a question about a story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT, or better still, by going to storygrid.com slash resources, clicking on the Editor Roundtable podcast, and leave us a voice message. That wraps it up this week. Great discussion, everyone. Thank you, Anne, Kim, Leslie, and Valerie, for your excellent editorial insights into Bandersnatch. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp of how to incorporate complex story form or not uh, into your own story or the cautionary tales that if you do do it, you should really think long and hard about it. You can find the links and additional material in the show notes at storygrid.com. If you're interested in hiring a certified StoryGrid editor or to like to find out more about what we do, visit storygrid.com slash editing. If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by telling other writers about us and by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. We love reading them and we do get a lot out of that. So please continue to do that. Join us next time for another deep dive into the conventions of the action genre as Leslie pitches 2018's action epic comedy, The Spy Who Dumped Me. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Do we say niche or niche? I say niche. I hear it both yeah, ways. I think, it doesn't I think matter. you decide. I'll say niche. It sounds more sophisticated. Okay. Just choose your path. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>